0: We've been in this series uh, this semester called Exiles, and last week we learned that we're butterflies, not caterpillars. If you're a Christian, your nature has changed. Same creature, same name, but new nature, which means new possibilities, new potential, new, entire new realms for you to explore that you couldn't before. You were earthbound before. Now the sky's the limit. So now when the Christian hears calls to be holy or to put sin to death or to say no to the flesh, all these Bible ways of talking about lean into your new nature, the Christian is capable and free to respond to that. Not perfectly, of course not. But we're able to respond to that because we're free, because we're alive, because you have wings, you can fly now. So I told you last week, what we're going to do is kind of take... a two-week look at that idea. And so tonight we're going to push on a little bit, go back to some of that, but push on and say not just that we are holy, but what's our holiness for? What's our holiness for? And better, uh, the better question is, who is our holiness for? That's what this passage is going to get at a lot more um, directly than the other questions. So this is the Word of God. This is out of First Peter chapter 2, and I'll read a little bit uh, for the end of the chapter as well, starting in verse 9. Peter says to us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once, or there was a time when you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh because they wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, or basically at that point, those who did not know God. Keep your conduct among them honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers or when they look to find fault in you, they will actually see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits them. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And then down to 24, I'll just read this as an addition. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you that. uh, I thank you that everything I said is not wishful thinking, not hope. It's true. It's history. And I pray if that history has not washed up on the shore of anyone in the room tonight, that tonight would be the night when that wave comes and crashes on the shore and the lights come on and the heart softens and the eyes see the God who made him or her. I pray for all of us who for a year or two years or 10 years or 20 years have known you. We pray that tonight again we would hear your voice, whether it's in a tiny way or a big way, that we would hear from you and be changed by it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, from a pretty early age, we have learned that to be different is a bad thing. Eli is three years old now. He's just in preschool, and he's just hit that age where we're concerned about what he's going to observe about the other people at the grocery store line and what he's going to say about them. Um, he's just getting to the point where he realizes maybe some things like deformities or handicaps, and he's uh, starting to draw attention to that, not because he's a mean guy, but because he's three and he has no filter. Eli's at an age, as three years old, where he's starting to realize people are different from each other. About the kindergarten years, we start to realize boys are different than girls, and and boys have developed this horrible disease called cooties that girls have that separates the two and puts them in a leper colony, and only the boys are allowed to play with the toys or go up in the fort or whatever else. Then the middle school years, which is the worst, 90% of my days in 6th through ninth grade, I dreaded walking into that building. Because it's the time of life where everything, all of the public parts of you that everybody can see are changing and we're all different but at different times. So maybe you were the early bloomer who was like two feet above everybody else at the assembly and you're like, I hate life right now. Or you were the late bloomer who like you were two feet smaller than everybody else in high school or those days where you're driving your mom or your dad's driving to school or you're in the bus and you're like, I wish I could wear a bag over my head. Because acne is just breaking out everywhere and everybody, you just think everyone's eyes are looking right at you. And we learn again, it's reinforced even more than it was in preschool or kindergarten or elementary school, it's reinforced all the more that it's best to lie low and not draw attention to yourself and it's best to not be seen as different. Being seen as different is bad, we learned, just socially we picked up those cues from all around us. Then come the high school years where, it, for the first time in life, being different is a little bit cool, like there's always that person who is the first to discover that new band or go to some concert with their parents' permission or whatever. You get to drive and do your own thing. A few people venture off from the trodden path and wear some shoes or some other stuff that's a little bit different. But still in high school, and definitely when you get into the college years, we learned well. And we've been shaped. And so even when some differences are celebrated and it's cool to be different in your own individual, you know as well as I do, there are certain things you are not allowed to be different in. There are certain opinions you're not really supposed to voice if you hold. Certain beliefs, don't talk about those. Certain behaviors, certain things to say. There's tremendous cultural pressure, whatever decade we're living in or the college years in, where some things are it's okay to be different in and a lot of other things it's just not okay to be different. And so we go back to preschool, kindergarten, middle school self and with the sophisticated expertise we have learned how to lie low and not draw unwanted attention to ourselves, right? We've learned how to camouflage ourselves and just kind of coast in the crowd so that in the best of ways we're individuals and we're different but in the ways that really matter No one's just kind of staring at us, wondering, who are you? Why did you do that? Why are you wearing that? So we are naturally averse to being seen as different. And it's really deeply embedded in us. And that makes this passage really hard to hear, if you know what's going on. It makes this this word from Peter really difficult to swallow, if you understand what he's saying. Because what Peter is saying, he pulls out a megaphone. And he says to the people he's writing to and to you tonight, you are different. He's saying that. You just are. You're different. You're not like everybody else, he's saying. He goes a step further uh, right after that, and he says, you don't fit in here. He says, you're sojourners and exiles. uh, Another translation of that word sojourner is aliens, like the way we think of Illegal aliens, which means you're not from, this isn't home for you. You're not from here. You don't fit in. People notice that you're not from town. He literally calls us aliens. There's no other way he could tell us we're more different than using that terminology. We're aliens, he says to the Christian who's living in exile, which means living in this life. And here's the catch. He begs. He pleads. He pleads. He lights the building on fire and says, Don't blend in. Please don't blend in. You can't blend in. You can't assimilate. You can't lie low and and go with the flow and just hide in plain sight. You can't do it. And not just for your sake. You can't do it for the world's sake. It will hurt you. It will hurt them. This won't end well. Do you remember the Ebola outbreak? I think it was three or four years ago. Um, Every day, I think it was the whole summer long, we were just inundated with pictures. Every channel was covering it, every newspaper, every magazine. Everybody was talking about Ebola, a horrible disease with a horrible fatality rate that breaks out every few years. This time it was in Liberia in West Africa. And you probably remember all the scenes of These people in yellow or white kind of Tyvek suits and they had rubber rain boots that were duct taped to the suit and big like four layers of gloves on duct taped around there with some kind of helmet and aspirator or gas mask thing on to to keep them from breathing in the air of anyone around them. And they took about 30 minutes to get dressed and get ready to go into these containment areas and 30 minutes to detox after chlorine bath sprayed down. They burned all the clothes And these people would go into these little areas, if you were lucky enough, if you had Ebola and you had started to kind of experience the symptoms, which came on like really fast, if you were lucky enough to get to one of these clinics, then what that place looked like is basically an open-air, outdoor, little fenced-in area with a few milk cartons you could sit on while you died. And there were people in these suits coming around giving you water or taking your temperature. Uh, or giving you rags to wash yourself off, or to care for you, and these people in the suits looked super weird. They looked like space men, right? They're like these inflatable suits they walked around in it. And if you didn't know the context, they would look even weirder. Like if you hadn't been following the news, you didn't know that Ebola was going around, and you see that on the news, you're like, "What the heck is that? Why right? are these people walking around in those suits with like gas masks?" right next to all these people. So those workers were hand-selected out of their communities, all over Liberia. They were doctors, they were nurses, they were anybody with medical know-how or any stage of medical school. We need you. They were hand-selected out of that, chosen out of those communities, and they were given these suits and this training for a very specific purpose. And they, and they were told and they were trained how to remain clean And how to to disinfect. And the reason why they were. Is because before they developed these procedures. To keep them clean and safe in that suit. Doctors and nurses were dying. With almost 100% fatality rates. The doctors and nurses who helped the first wave of Ebola patients. Before they developed these techniques. And so for these nurses and doctors. The remaining nurses and doctors who were left in the villages. That were hand selected for this very specific purpose. Not just their life, but the lives of all of the patients, the Ebola patients in those clinics, depended on their cleanliness, depended on their holiness, depended on them not being contaminated. What would it be like if these people in the yellow suits were thinking, I look like such an idiot. I mean, I can't believe I showed up to this thing and they didn't tell me what to wear. I mean, I'm wearing this. I stand out like a sore thumb. This is awkward. And they start taking their suit off. Or what if they say, man, I hate to be the center of attention. So like, um, we're just going to take this suit off and I'm going to go be one of them. Because I want to blend in. I don't like standing out. I don't like being different. I just kind of want to be one of the crowd. And they take their suit off and they go in there. And on and on and on. What happens if that happened? Right? It's not just that they get sick and potentially die. It's that all the people they were sent to help there remain sick and many of them die. It was the Ebola patients' lives that depended on their cleanliness, not just their lives. Peter is saying in this passage to the Christians, You are fundamentally different. You're different. You just are. God has made you different, He's changed your nature. You were were chosen for a very specific purpose. You You were taken out of where you were. Peter calls it darkness and brought into his marvelous light. But not just to be like, hey, I'm in the light. This is awesome. Back to life. No, for a very specific purpose. To proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you, which is directed both at God now that you're reconciled to him. You have a dialogue with your God now. But also to proclaim those excellencies to others, to be a priest to the world. That's another piece of his identity. He's telling you, you, like I said last week, you are a pastor. If you're united to Jesus, the high priest, you are a priest too. And he's saying, just like the guy who walks around with a clerical collar and everyone's like, oh, there's a priest. You're that guy, you're that girl. You're a priest to the world. It's why you have been brought out of what you were in. It's what you've been saved for. And holiness literally has the weight of the world on it because our own holiness, our own abstaining from anything that further contaminates us, it's not just about me and my track record of how many days has it been since I did that. It's all about my neighbors. It's all about my friends. It's all about UGA. It's all about Athens. They're the ones who get hurt when we're not clear about who we are and when we're not clear about the motivations for us in holiness. And so Peter is saying patiently, he calls these people beloved. He's not yelling at him, He's saying beloved, beloved, people I love. We've got to get clear about who the heck we are we got to, because we can't be the people who are stripping off the the suits and saying, I just want to be one of them. I don't like standing out. I don't like being different. They need you to be different. You have to be different for the sake of the world, for the sake of people who were just like you years ago before you came to know this great God. So real quick, who does Peter say we are now? Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Who are we? Who are the people in the suits that God has sent out into the world? Well, the first thing to notice is when Peter starts going through this, he's talking about us in a historical way, not in an inspirational way, not in an aspirational way. He's not trying to give us a little pep talk. It's okay. You're awesome people. You know, you're just amazing. You're really special. That's an inspirational way. An aspirational way is, hey, guys, we're really slacking. Let's get better at this. Like, Let's keep our eye on the ball and really dial this down. That's aspirational. He's not talking about inspirational or aspirational. He is saying historical claims to the Christian, historical claims and past tense verbs. This is what I mean. He said, once, once in history, you were not a people. Now in history, you are a people. Once in history, you had not received mercy. Once, you were under God's anger and his wrath because he's fair and he's good. And he doesn't let that slide. But now, he says, now you have received mercy. You used to be at some other point in history in darkness, but now in history, in February, you are in light. Historical. Once you were not in college, now here you are. Once you were there, now you're here in Jesus. Historical. Which means this is who we are. We are different, we're a chosen race, he says. A people for God's own possession. When he uses these words, he talks about we're a chosen race, Greek ethnos. He says we're a people for God's own possession. He says we're a holy nation. When he's talking about these things, dig a little bit deeper into what he's getting at. Race, nation, people. Those aren't just kind of three things to be like, okay, uh, I guess we're not Americans. We're like, we're Christians. Is that what he means? Or like, what does he mean that we're a race? Like, is that open for abuse here? Like, we're like, we're a special race. What he's doing is using these cultural terms. He's saying what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing is recreating humanity. And the church is the epicenter of that recreation. J- Jesus is renewing and reconciling all things. There is no plan B in God's economy, only a plan A, and He never backed away from it. Plan A is I'm making people in my image who are going to love me and live with me forever in perfection and in a perfect place, custom designed to make you thrive. He never gave up, He stuck with that. So now Jesus is doing that through the church, through the people He is saving. He is remaking humanity, which means this whole race talk and this whole uh, nation talk and this whole people talk, it comes with a culture. Every ethnicity comes with a culture, right? Every nation comes with a culture. Every people group comes with a culture. The kingdom of God comes with a culture too. The gospel comes with a culture too, and it's a counterculture, and it's antithetical. It's opposite of worldly culture. Power in the kingdom of God is not used to oppress and get a leg up on your neighbor who's weaker or less advantaged than you. Power is given away freely to serve your disadvantaged neighbor. Gifts are not given to you to hoard and leverage for your own success, but they're given to bless the world and develop it and refine it. And on and on and on and on and on. That's the culture of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, not just you're a new nation, a new race, a new people. You are swimming in this new gospel culture. New relational patterns, new ways to use power, new ways to use your speech and your tongue, new ways to use your time, new ways to use your body. And you say, well, for what? Use it for what? He calls us a royal priesthood. What do priests do? Priests bring God to people, and they bring people to God. Priests talk to people. They, priests talk to their friends about God, and priests talk to God about their friends. That's what priests do. In a sense, kind of a, a, um, a go-between. Not that you've got to like come through a pastor to get to God. Not at all what I'm saying. But have you ever been helped by a pastor or a spiritual mentor or someone who when you talk to them or heard counsel for them or heard them kind of apply the Bible to you, you're like, whoa, I've never thought about it that way. Priests talk to their friends about God and talk to God about their friends. They intercede for their friends. They pray for them. And Peter says, which Noah read earlier, this isn't news. Peter's not getting creative. He's simply repeating what's always been the story. Israel was supposed to be priests to the nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That's what he means when he says that if you're a Christian, you're a priest. So if you bundle all of this up, we're a new race, a new people, a new nation, and we're a royal priesthood. Uh, You can use the language you used last week. You're butterflies. So Peter's ethic, his ethic for behavior is just be what you are, which is a fun ethic. Because if you're a duck, he's like, quack and fly and eat fish. If you're a bird, he's like, get out in the sky and eat worms. If you're a dog, he's like, go fetch that bone. To the Christian, he's saying, go do what God has enabled your nature to go do now, which is to love God and love the person sitting next to you. That's what holiness is. That's what obedience is. That's what the law says. Love, love. And we're free to do that now. And he says, you're a butterfly, so go fly. So go be who you already are. Not try to become a new person. Not make three New Year's resolutions to be a different person. He says, you are a different person. Historically, once you were that, now you're this. So really quickly, this is square one of every day as a Christian. I was hanging out with one of you today, and we were talking, and you asked the question, which I wish I asked every day. How do I remember who I am? If I forget this frequently, how do I remember who I already am? And it was like, keep doing this. Go get coffee with your buddies. Go to that community group. Not just because you need it, but they need you to remind them as well. Corporate worship, Sunday mornings, have friends who remind you about this, have friends you remind of this stuff, read, think, whatever, whatever you got to do to confront yourself with who you already are and what's already true about you. But this is square one every day as a Christian. Wait a second, wait a second, Ben, who am I? Who am I? I'm all stuck in my head again. I'm sitting in the car terrified to walk through this door and talk to people who I don't know or they don't know me and I want to just bolt through the door. Wait a second, stop, slow down. Who am I? I'm a priest. I'm a priest to the people in the room. I get to go meet them where they are in the corner, over there in the bathroom, wherever else, and I get to say, hey, I'm glad you're here. I get to do those things because I'm free and because I'm different. So Peter says, embrace your distinctiveness. But here's the big question. This kind of circles back to that story about Ebola. What are we to do with our holiness? What are we to do with it? Who is it for? Who is our holiness for? I'm embarrassed by this, but for the longest time, perhaps until I had to dig deep in this passage, when I think of holiness, when I think of the word sanctification, which is a big weird word that appears in the Bible, if you haven't heard of it, it basically means God making you like Jesus through the ordinary course of your life. When I think of that, when I think of my journey or my story as a Christian, I think of Ben. Do you think of you? I bet you do. You're probably like me. I don't think of you when I think of my holiness. When I think of saying no to temptation, y'all don't factor into my head nearly as much as you should. Do I factor into your head when you're in that moment of temptation? Do I, do I look at this or not? Do I say that comment and laugh at that joke or not? Do I avoid that person or not? We should. We should. Because Peter is saying holiness is essentially a community affair. Your personal holiness, your obedience, your repentance, your learning slowly through life to say no to the things that you used to always say yes to, it actually has as much to do with your neighbor and your roommates and your classmates as it does you. And I just always think about me when I think about that stuff. And so it's all super personal. It's like... Every time I'm doing well, which doesn't really mean much because I'm always well with Jesus, right? But every time I feel like I'm doing well, I'm like, man, Ben, you're doing pretty well. This is great. And then I have a setback. And I fall. Back. And I think about it as my performance, my coasting, my backsliding, my perf- me doing well or whatever. And it's all about Ben. It's a Ben Coppage project. And there's ways in which that's not inappropriate to think about that. God is renewing you, and that means individual things for you. But it raises the question, have you ever thought about someone else when it comes to your own battle with sin? Have you ever said no to porn because of how it affects all of the girls in this room here tonight? Or guys, ladies, you struggle with this too. Have you ever said no for their sake? Man, if I look at this, I know how I'm gonna look at them when I walk through the door. Have you ever rearrange your living situation for the sake of someone else have you ever altered what you were that story you were going to set and you just you killed it you buried it you didn't share that prayer request because you knew man that person's reputation's on the line and i know this isn't a prayer request and if i say that all of these other people are going to think about that guy differently have you ever obeyed jesus for the sake of someone else for their benefit i think this is a healthy way to think about it and i think it actually opens the the door to a musty, humid basement, and just cold, fresh air the gospel comes in. And it's like, man, this gives me a whole new motivation, a whole new way to think about holiness. It's not all about me and my progress and my track record, but the three things that I really struggle with. Peter says, this is for the sake of the world. This is for the sake of the church. And so we've got to check our motivations. Are we just obeying and thinking about obedience so I can be happier and more peaceful and not have to struggle with anxiety anymore? Are we thinking about pushing back against some of these attractions just because it gives us a little bit of emotional peace? Peter gives us a better motivation. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they see you. And they glorify God because of it. Which presumes they can see. Right? Peter, an inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, presumes that your friends are capable. Some of them. Some are so blinded they can't. God can work in that too. But but he presumes many will see your good deeds, your love, your distinctiveness, your yellow Tyvek suit your love of neighbor and your love of God, your fidelity to God, your allegiance to Jesus, they will see it, and it will affect them. And for some of them, it will radically change them and make them different. That's what Peter says, how God is going to meet many of your friends is actually through you and through the way you live your life in the super mundane, boring, ordinary moments in the lab or at Ramsey. That's where he's going to do it, and that's how he's going to do it. And I just love this because this is so counterintuitive to the way I typically think about abstaining from the passions of the flesh. This just this helps us think about it in a whole new way, and it, it populates our private little Christian lives with other people in the room. Wouldn't that be a better alternative when I start prizing obedience and listening to the Lord because of some of you in the room, and I'm like, man, Anna needs me to fight here. She needs me to fight here, because I know it's going to happen. My heart's going to harden. I'm going to be distant for like a week or whatever. It's just not going to, she needs me to fight. She needs me to listen. She needs me to obey. My kids need it. Robert Murray McShane is famous for saying to preachers, the best thing you can give your people is your own holiness. It's for this reason. G.K. Chesterton said, the worst argument against Christianity is Christians, and the best argument for Christianity is Christians. People will see and deduce accordingly whether there is any, any supernatural explanation for why you are the way you are, for why you act the way you act, for how you can say no to things that the world says is so precious and so sweet. Peter says the world needs you to be different. UGA needs you and me to be different. RUF needs you to be distinct. Your roommates need you to be distinct. They need you in that suit. They need you wholly. Let's close with a couple of stories. Let me ask you this. I know radio's kind of over, but uh, for Spotify or whatever else you do for your music, how do you experience that music, and how do you ever wind up Googling lyrics to a song? Music always draws you in first. Nobody reads poetry and then goes and Googles, has this poem been put to music? People hear music, and they love the song, the tune, the rhythm, whatever, and then they say, man, I gotta, I gotta, that's a catchy song. What is that? His, oh, his keyboard. Sorry, I'm not with the mobile generation yet. So they go like this and they say, What's that song? I got to go get that. Then they get the words, then they get the lyrics. Peter says the same thing. The gospel in your life, Jesus Christ freeing you from slavery and addiction to sin, is the music of freedom. And the world has ears to hear it. And that's what will draw them in to the point that they will ask you, What are the lyrics to that song? Jason Bennett. And the music that came from his life is what drew me to Jesus. Because I'd known him long enough in my fraternity to know something is really different about that guy. Because I know what it's like to be the guy who says he's a Christian and comes to these Bible studies and does what he does all the other times. and like, But he's different. He wasn't self-righteous. He wasn't arrogant. He was so humble. He was brutally honest about his present tense sins. Not stuff he beat. I used to struggle with that. Stuff like, guys this is what this morning was. That's what Jason was like, humble. And so he was approachable. You, I've confessed sins to Jason, I've confessed to almost nobody else because he was so humble and approachable. The music of his life, the way he talked about God, God was alive. He was all tangled up in the details of Jason's day-to-day life. And I'm like, got to the point of concluding, I don't know that God, and He seems real, and mine seems like an idea that I just fabricated, and that's what led to this circuitous route of Jesus meeting me in this room, and saying, "Ben, this is who I really am." And it was because of the music of one man's life, and he thought he was a failure. If you ask Jason, "How are you doing, man?" he'd say, "Oh, I just I'm embarrassed." My life's such a mess right now, such a wreck. But Jason had a really big Jesus because he needed a really big Jesus. And that's the music I heard that drew me into the lyrics. It's Black History Month. Martin Luther King Jr., I've been reading some of his letters a little bit more. One of the lines out of his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail is brilliant. They're all brilliant, but this one is applicable tonight especially. He's talking about the early church church in the first century versus the church of 1960s in America. And he's comparing and contrasting what the church should be and what it had become. And he said this, in those days, the early church, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. The church, you are a thermostat, not a thermometer. We are to set the temperature of the communities we're in, not reflect the temperature of the communities we're in, which means we're to be different, not assimilate. To be distinct, to be holy, not to rip the suits off so that we can have a more peaceful experience and our neighbors die. How does all of this come true? There is one who is truly holy and the reason he is able to save you. If you already know him, the reason he was able to save you and if you don't know him, the reason Jesus is able tonight to actually accomplish your salvation is because he was holy and he is holy. He is the only doctor in the suit who never got contaminated and therefore was the only one on the scene who is able to help you where you are. The only one capable, the only one still alive to go and minister life to the dying and the dead. He is holy. That's why he is able to be helpful to you. And now he has made you holy, and so you're able to be helpful to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you that you're the Holy One, and that was not an automatic holiness. You fought for holiness. Hebrews says you are tempted in every way we have been except without sin, which means when we got knocked out in round one, you fought all 12 rounds and you won. You know what it is to be holy more than we could ever hope to be. And right now, all of those around you say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus, make us holy. You have made us holy, but really make us holy, we pray. Make RUF a place that isn't about RUF, but is about you, and we pray that the campus would get to taste and see that you are good, that you're gracious. We ask this all in your holy name. Amen.